Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. Hello, you're very welcome along to Supercharged. I hope you're enjoying your weekend wherever you're listening to the show. Now, this evening, we'll be tackling the topic of prostate cancer. Why? Because one in seven men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during their lifetime. So if you stop and think about it for a second, how many men do you know in your life? Like fathers, brothers, cousins, nephews, neighbours, partners, ex-partners? Like That's a high statistic. One in seven. So we want to arm all the men out there with what they need to know. We'll chat through the symptoms, the treatments and what to be aware of when it comes to prostate cancer. Also, during the week on my Instagram page, I asked if any of you had questions about migraine. All I can say is the response was huge. And we'll have a migraine specialist in studio answering your questions. You've already been getting in touch with your stories about prostate cancer and migraine. My husband was 41 when he had his prostate removed. He had no signs, no symptoms. This is a rare form of migraine that mimics a stroke. Started to have blurry vision and, and pretty severe migraines for a number of months. My youngest boy was diagnosed with migraine. He was just um, under five. If you want to send in your comments or your stories like what we've heard or any questions for our experts, you can text in on 51551 or email supercharged at rte.ie. Now, I can't forget as well, during the show, you're also going to hear another fitness tip of the week to put into practice. Around 3,900 men are diagnosed with prostate cancer each year in Ireland. And in November 2019, Robbie Connell became one of those men and he joins me now. Robbie, welcome to Supercharged. Thank you for coming into studio to share your story. In relation to your own experience, like how were you diagnosed with prostate cancer? How did it come about? It was purely by chance, Anna. Um, one of the insurance companies that we had in work in Dublin Fire Brigade ran an initiative called the Blue and Pink Power mm-hmm. and they were doing free screening just on the off chance, it wouldn't have been something I would have even considered, just went for the screening. I had no symptoms beforehand, really? none whatsoever. I had no issues at all. Uh, I actually thought I was going up and I was coming back and I was just wasting a day, like, you know. So mm-hmm. got a call the next day and the PSA, which is the marker for prostate problems, uh, may not be the cancer, was a little bit high. So then... was and that was showing up in your blood? It was. So went then to the bonds and met the consultant Richard Power he done the digit test and we done some more bloods was recommended to do an MRI and a another test mm-hmm. um, at this point can I ask yeah you're after finding out it's a little bit high are you worried at all do you just think this is standard procedure what's going through your head yeah and you know it it's it's easy to say now when I look back and say um it didn't really bother me it was only just another test but when somebody mentions that you possibly could have, uh, you start thinking the worst. Mm-hmm. It's 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 inevitable, and I would have I would have always considered myself having kind of a lot of resilience and a lot of mental strength, mm-hmm. particularly in your role. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And um, but it sets the doubt, and you're already starting to plan and pre-plan, and what am I going to do, and what am I not? So, 
following on there and when we got the diagnosis um, and that was on November the 7th funny how some dates know, kind of st- stay in your stay um, the consultants said I have something to talk to you about he could have asked me what my name was how old I was I would have had nothing I would have had no idea what the answers were it was like a cloud came down and it was it's a strange one because I would have said oh no yeah 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 so I typically then started making jokes and that's my way of kind of coping with certain Mm. things So once you got the diagnosis yes. then and you heard, like how, how did that affect you? I, I have a, my reaction generally to things, to bad news is, is that I'm more concerned about how they affect other people. Uh, and that's only a coping mechanism mm-hmm. for, that, that I well, use. Well also you don't have to deal with how you're feeling yes, yourself then. Yes, yes. And um, I was more concerned how it was going to affect uh, my children and my mother because my father died of cancer when he was 52, which was the same age that I got diagnosed. So I knew it was going to hit her really hard. Mm-hmm. So um, they were the, they were the more concerning things, and still still we hadn't decided what treatment we were going to go for, you know. And and to be honest with you, when when they mentioned surgery, I just you know no way, like you know, yeah. because we had an idea. Because no no matter how many people tell you not to do it, you always check Doctor Google to see what's you know. And again, we don't recommend it. No, we yes, do. No, we do not. Happen. And I can and we do. We check it, like you know. So so you ended up then getting surgery though. Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. And and how was that for you and even the process of it? How did you cope with it? Well, even the, the, the physical side of it as well, because it was surgery. Yeah, well, a, a funny one. Uh, myself and Ashlyn went to London after the diagnosis and I got a call. Ashlyn was going around the shops and I think I was sitting in the corner and I got a call from a... No- and strange enough, I answered the, the, and it was an unknown number. And they says, can you come in? on Monday for the operation. Now, I just kind of just blanked. Tired the first thing, lied through my teeth, said, we're going away then. So so when eventually then got the, sur- the date for the surgery, which was on the 3rd of January 2020, um, surgery was keyhole. Um, when you go in, they do it with, it's a robotic, sur- a robotic uh, machine they use, mm-hmm. a little bit like what we see here with the mics and the seven arms and they go in and the, anyway. Mm-hmm. Probably looks quite scary. Yes, it does, okay. yeah, because I st- stupidly asked could I see the machine beforehand. Again, <laughs> we probably don't recommend that. <laughs> don't recommend that, mm-hmm. no. There are some of the other things. So I had the surgery, was in Bowmount. You're Because it's keyhole surgery, you're kind of only there for a couple of days mm-hmm. uh, and they let you home. And as a follow-on then for your treatment, did you have to have anything else or what What would, like after the surgery, was there anything else that you had to do? No, because you're waiting then, they send off they send off the prostate off to the cat lab then and, and they do the, 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 the pathology on it. So I was lucky, uh, the cancer was coming out of the prostate, but they had taken away some other bits and pieces mm-hmm. around uh, the cancer and the prostate. So all I, it's it's a wait and see then, like, you know, okay. you, you know, you do. So there was no further treatment, no. but you had to be monitored. Yeah. It was, okay. yeah, and uh, same as everybody else. That and has I cancer. suppose, speaking about post-surgery then, like the after effects, like what were the main challenges for you that you saw arise? Yeah, I, I suppose recovering from the surgery can be quite uh, quick if, you, if you, you're fit. And that's probably another important point is that, you know, the, the, the consultant does say, you know, lose what you can, lose weight, whatever you can, get yourself fit. And it does, it makes a huge difference. Um, some of the most common side effects of after surgery are incontinence and erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I I would have suffered from from both of them, and I think most men suffer from them in some uh, varying degrees. And one of one of the real positives that Beaumont do is is that they hold the class for incontinence. Oh, excellent! About a month after the operation, but again. There was supposed to be, I think, ten men at that who had gone through the operation. There was only three of us showed up on the day. You know, well, why do you think that is? I think it's because it's it's a little bit like there's a lot of taboos around the cancer, around prostate cancer, mm-hmm. because it's kind of very intimate where it is, mm-hmm. how you test for it, the after effects. It 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 does does a huge kind of closed area with it that people don't like discussing it. They don't like talking about you know, going to the toilet or anything like that, you know. Um, but I found it really, really good. Really, really good, you know. And I would encourage men, whoever do it, they, they should be made to do it. They should be dragged in by their wives or their partners and made do the course because it does help and it does work, you know. And for you then talking about, like you said, the, the side effects and, um, you know, the erectile dysfunction or the, I suppose, the incontinence, like the, the mental trauma that can mm. come with that, mm. How did you seek help there? I believe you went counselling you found it very beneficial. I I think it's a huge area uh, in relation to all different cancers is that when you get the diagnosis, you go through the treatment, whatever it may be, and you get to the other end and you get the all clear. It's like then, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. But it's only really after then that the... the, the it's like it's... I heard a, I heard a, a really good saying and it's like... Uh, the worst thing about cancer is is that it removes yourself for a period of time and that sense of self and that's exactly what it does and then mm-hmm. afterwards when you're kind of you settle and you start thinking about it, it it's overwhelming mm-hmm. you know and you I and, imagine, and, and yeah. yeah I have no issue saying that it was very overwhelming like you know and it started to affect me and my mental health like mm-hmm. you know so I I went to the my own GP and the work doctor and they arranged between them counselling and I got it very, very quickly and I found it usually beneficial, like usually. And I suppose it was probably more the counselling gave me coping skills to kind to deal with certain issues. Um, And it's a huge area that's not covered, you know, and not taught about because you get the all clear and you think, they're okay. Well, that's know. brilliant that yeah. you found it beneficial. I suppose to finish, I'd, I'd like to ask you, like, what would you say to any man out there that suspects that something may be wrong with his prostate? Yeah. And isn't possibly talking about it? Yeah. And I, I and I know we touched on it earlier. It's because it's, it's such an intimate cancer mm-hmm. that men kind of hide away from it. But if, if I can say anything to men is that I, I, I know myself that, you know, there's a lot of trepidation about the test and that it, people think the digit test is the big one but it's not the, we should go and get ourselves checked every year and it's just a blood test so mm-hmm. when you're when you're actually getting your blood checked you just ask the doctor can you check tick the box for PSA and that, that's how simple it is and I was caught early and if I had left it a year I would have been in serious bother because that's how aggressive it was. So get yourself checked. Get yourself checked. I right. don't know. I don't know how many times I've said that to people. Talk about it. Talk to somebody who has had it. There's loads of people willing to talk about this. And just, just I, I'm, I'm going to add in a little thing that my wife Ashlyn, she got diagnosed with lung cancer uh, during the summer, um, and she had surgery and then she had chemo. 
but she's a hairdresser and they like talking. They never stop talking, like. But she won't talk about her cancer. So when I see that that women won't talk about cancer and women I know won't talk about cancer, men don't talk about mm-hmm. it. And we need to talk about it. Definitely need to talk about it. Robbie, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story and shining a light on, on prostate cancer and the awareness around talking about it and getting checked. Go for that blood test. Go to your GP. For more information, you can visit Irish Cancer Society's website on www.cancer.ie or you can contact their support line on free phone 1800 200 700 or email supportline at irishcancer.ie. Next up, I'll be chatting with an expert with lots of advice for all the men out there on how to recognise prostate cancer and how to treat it. Welcome back. Now, on the show this evening, we are talking about prostate cancer. And some of you have been getting in touch about your experiences. Hi, Anna. Hubby finished treatment a couple of months ago. He has hemochromatosis, so gets regular bloods. A couple of years ago, Doc noticed rise in his PSA. They monitored it, but decided to act on it last May. He referred him to a urologist who did the usual test, the MRI, the biopsy, and it came back as prostate cancer. He had no signs, no symptoms. Opted for radiotherapy. He was very fortunate to be selected for the newly approved radiotherapy, which delivers a dose to the specified area while protecting surrounding organs. It involves less sessions, less side effects with the same results. Fast forward, the couple of side effects are disappearing like the urgent need for the loo. All others he anticipated are fine. Hi Anna, I think when people hear prostate cancer they think of older men, Uh, however that wasn't the case here. My husband was 41 when he had his prostate removed. His brother had been diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, two years previously. So when he had his bloods checked his PSA was up. Um, He would have been probably not even 40 at that stage. He had surgery in October 21 and is absolutely in perfect health now. Um, no, No problem. He's doing really, really well. So it isn't an age thing. It can happen at any time, um, especially with family history, increases the risk. Thank you to those getting in contact this evening. It is all about opening the conversation and creating awareness. We've got a text in here as well from Kevin that says, thanks to Robbie for being so honest. It meant a lot. Keep those texts coming in on 51551. Now with me in studio to talk more about prostate cancer is Professor Thomas Lynch, consultant urologist at St. James's Hospital and Blackrock Clinic and Trinity College. Thank you so much for joining us, Thomas. It's such an important conversation to be having, but even listening to those voice notes they were coming in from the women about the men's experience so you know it is a very sensitive topic but let's go back to basics for a second and for people listening can you explain exactly what the prostate is and where is it located Good evening Anna and thank you for having me in this evening the prostate gland is only found in men Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a gland that surrounds the water passage as it leaves the bladder it's like a donut and the urine goes down through the middle of the prostate gland and as we all get older the prostate gland gets larger so it impacts on the central aspect of it and it 
but the pressure on the water path is somewhat like putting your foot on the garden hose and the uh, flow of water at the end of the garden okay. hose will diminish. So that's what the, where the prostate is. And the function of the prostate is that it makes the fluid uh, for the seminal fluid and uh, that's stored in the seminal vesicles. So all men have a prostate and as we all get older, the prostate gland gets larger. And mostly when men get symptoms of of urinary symptoms such as a diminished flow, maybe a bit of urinary urge up at night, it's generally due to the benign enlargement of the prostate. And that's one disease that you get in the prostate. Okay. Oh, so that's so like, that's the difference. Like, what's the difference between prostate disease and, and, and prostate cancer? Okay. That, that's the benign enlargement of the prostate gland, which is the most common mm-hmm. uh, issue with the prostate gland when men get symptoms that they get it from the benign disease. Prostate cancer is the other disease that we uh, see in the prostate gland and that's when you get a cancerous growth in the prostate like you do in breast cancer or colon cancer. You get abnormal cells forming in the prostate gland and they begin to multiply and grow. In general, men who have early stage prostate cancer don't have any symptoms from their cancer. Whereas whereas if it's later stages, you can have symptoms. However, the early stages of prostate cancer don't you don't get symptoms generally. I do have a question for you that. But before I get to it, I want to ask you a question. If an enlarged prostate is left unchecked, can that develop into prostate cancer? No, or are they separate? No, they're completely separate okay. issues as such. So uh, uh, not looking after a prostate as it gets larger is not, is, there's no harm in that if you don't have any urinary symptoms, if it's not causing any back pressure in the bladder. Mm-hmm. No, so benign disease as it gets larger doesn't suddenly turn into prostate okay, so cancer. that's an important distinction yes. for people listening. So going back then to, I suppose, the early signs of prostate cancer being asymptomatic. So if they're asymptomatic, how can men detect that they may have prostate cancer? Well, that's why we have the rapid access prostate clinics in this country for men between the ages of 50 and 70. We have what we call opportunistic screening. We don't have screening for prostate cancer like we do for breast cancer. For example, all women between the ages of 50 and 70 are invited in for mammography Mm -hmm. and then proceed based on the outcome from the mammography. Whereas with prostate screening, uh, it's what we call opportunistic screening. The way way it happens is that a man will go into his GP, he might go in for an insurance check or whatever, he'll have his PSA done. He might go in and ask the GP to have his PSA, he might have been listening to the radio on a Sunday and he might go in Mm -hmm. on a Monday morning and ask to have his PSA checked. Or when he's in at the GP for something else, the the general practitioner might say, would you like to have your PSA checked? So that's opportunistic screening because he's in with his GP, whereas he's not invited in like uh, ladies uh, who are being screened for breast cancer. Like from what age should men be more conscious of their prostate? Well, you should be conscious that, uh, uh, from the age of 40 on. But okay. the, as I mentioned, that the, the um, rapid access clinics which we have in the country are for men between the ages of 50 and 70. However, if there's a, fam- a stronger family history of prostate cancer, so that if your father had prostate cancer at an earlier age mm-hmm. or you have brothers who have prostate cancer, well, then you should start checking yourself. And we often say from the age of 40, you can have a PSA. And if the PSA, we'll come back to what the PSA is. If the PSA is very low, you can then put it off for a year or two. Mm-hmm. If it's moderate, you can then have it checked on an annual basis with your general practitioner. PSA, as I've mentioned, it's a simple blood test. It stands for prostate-specific antigen. So really, in simple terms, it's a substance that's produced and manufactured by the prostate gland. It leaks out into the bloodstream in all men. And the PSA increases as we all get older because 
of the in benign enlargement of the prostate gland. So when you measure your PSA, it's a simple blood test that can be done in the uh, general practitioner's office. And if it's above a certain level, depending on the patient's age. So as I said, as we get older, the prostate gets larger. Mm-hmm. So we allow a man in his 60s to have a slightly higher PSA than a okay. man in his 40s because you, the benign component component of the enlargement is producing the elevated PSA also. So let's talk then about the diagnosis of prostate cancer and the various treatments that are available. Well, first thing is the PSA. So if the PSA is abnormal Mm -hmm. or when you see your general practitioner, you have what we call a digital rectal examination that's examining the prostate gland. So if the prostate feels abnormal, or the PSA is abnormal, well then in general that man will be referred to the hospital. When mm-hmm. he's seen in the hospital, he'll be assessed uh, in the clinic and then an MRI scan will be arranged. An MRI scan is uh, going through the, the tunnel, as it were, and it gives us very good views of the prostate gland. MRI scans are really good now. They've improved dramatically over the last five or six years mm-hmm. and we use them now routinely prior to any biopsy. What the MRI does is that it tells us about the internal architecture of the prostate, whereas the examination by the doctor is the outside. It's like looking at a house. You can see the outside of the house, but you need to get inside the house. And that's what the MRI does. It allows us to get inside the prostate gland. If the prostate gland, if there's an abnormality in the prostate gland, that would indicate that that's, that uh, we need to biopsy that particular area. So they're what we call targeted biopsies. It doesn't mean that there's a cancer there, but there's an abnormality which we need to biopsy. And there are various ways that we can do biopsies. Biopsies is basically taking needle samples from the prostate gland and looking at the sample down through the microscope. And then when we look down the microscope, we look at various features of the cells. We look at, to simplify it really, we look at the shape, the colour, mm-hmm. the orientation of the cell, the thickness of the walls. This gives us an idea whether it's a slow growing or a fast growing tumour. And will that change and determine the different types of treatment then Absolutely, that you do? Absolutely, okay. because uh, the, the, the cells that don't look aggressive, that don't look angry, and we classify them as a Gleason 6. And that means that We often say to men, we don't need to do anything about this. We just need to keep an eye on it. It's what we call active surveillance. It's a very low grade cancer. Uh, It is there, however, and what it has indicated is that your prostate has the ability to produce abnormal cells. So we need to keep an eye that it doesn't produce more aggressive abnormal cells in the future. So we keep a very close eye on these patients who have low grade cancers. And that's what we call active surveillance. And patients are surveyed on an ongoing basis uh, in the hospital. And focusing more then on the fast growing tumours and the types of treatment available for those. Yes. So if you have a man and uh, he's got a slightly higher grade tumour, so like a Gleason 7, Gleason 8, depending on on how aggressive it is, whether we do further scans to see whether it's localised to the prostate Mm -hmm. gland or whether it's spread outside the prostate gland. But just let's assume for the gentleman who has a a prostate cancer, which we feel is localised, there are various treatment options available. You can uh, offer that man uh, radiotherapy. This is where you get external beams that are focused in on the prostate gland and they kill off the prostate tumour and the prostate itself. There's also brachytherapy, which is a type of radiotherapy. It's where you put little seed implants into the prostate gland under a general anaesthetic and these little pellets emit radiotherapy over weeks and months following their implantation. You can put a probe in and freeze the prostate, heat up the prostate. Uh, You can use focused ultrasound. There are various other treatment options for localised treatment. In addition then, 
as your as your speaker Robbie said there that he had surgery. Mm-hmm. That's uh, removing the entire prostate gland and joining the bladder back up to the water passage. And we now do surgery routinely using the robotic technique, which is uh, keyhole surgery. And patients are generally in hospital for 24 to 48 hours after the surgery. We were getting messages in about the side effects because, of course, the treatments are one thing, but often the side effects of the treatments can be something that can be quite overwhelming for patients. So what can the potential side effects be and how can they cope with them? Well, first of all, we must remember that we're dealing with the cancer. So the primary the primary focus here is to treat the cancer and get rid of the cancer. Mm-hmm. But because of the nature of the prostate gland and where it is, that by removing the prostate gland, the downsides are, number one, is control of the waterworks can be, can be affected. And men are, are made aware of this before their surgery. And even in the best hands, that it, we can't predict beforehand who's going to have trouble. But afterwards, men can be wet. But there are operations that you can have. Uh, but the vast majority of men do very well, have full urinary control and no issues. But we must remember we're focusing on the cancer and mm-hmm. no matter what you do, that some men will have issues. And the other issue is with uh, erectile function, that the nerves that supply the penis come down along, they're actually attached to the prostate gland. And during surgery, where it's appropriate to preserve the nerves, we we preserve the nerves. But the, like nerves anywhere in the body, when they're moved, they don't always work. And there are issues with erectile function afterwards. But these can be dealt with with, with uh, medication for erectile dysfunction and, and surgery uh, for the incontinence. But the vast majority of men uh, are, are dry after the operation. And mm-hmm. we do have to remember that our primary concern is the cancer to get mm-hmm. rid of the cancer. And there is very high success rates when it comes to treating prostate oh, cancer. Absolutely. The outcomes from prostate cancer yeah, have changed. It's so important for people to remember, you know, that it's a cancer, but there is a very high success rate. Yes. And when I started in uh, as a urologist, about 60% of men who had a diagnosis of prostate cancer, it was already advanced before they came to the hospital. Now 60% of men are seen with clinically localised disease where they can be offered a potential cure. And the big issue here is that there's a lot of men out there who are worried. They've got some urinary symptoms. They're mm-hmm. not sure what to do. They've sleepless nights worrying about it. We call these the worried well. The vast majority of these men, there's really, there's nothing wrong with them. They're yeah. worried, but they are well. So all what they need to do is go along to their GP, have the simple blood test. Mm-hmm. If it's there, it's there. You might as well know about it. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of men won't have anything wrong with them at all. And if they do, early detection is key. Absolutely. The earlier you detect any cancer, the better the outcomes are. Yeah, and the less invasive the treatment would be, I would imagine. Absolutely. Too. The less invasive and, and the then if it's less if the treatment is less invasive, well then the outcomes are better. Thomas, to finish up, like you know, when we're talking, I mean this is specifically focused on men's health. Like what other checks should men be carrying it regularly? You know, or what symptoms should they be looking out for? Like whether it's for things like testicular cancer, penile cancers, because you know, this might be the only place that they can hear this advice because they may not be willing to go to their GP just yet. Well, testicular cancer, there there are about uh, 160 men who are diagnosed every year in this country with testicular cancer. But the outcomes from testicular cancer are very good because about five or six men die a year from testicular Mm -hmm. cancer. So the outcomes are very good. But if you notice something abnormal in your scrotum, 
uh, go along to your GP and have it checked. The vast majority of men, it won't be anything. And that's what men, when they come in to see me with mm-hmm. issues like that. And similarly with penile cancer, but penile cancer is, is a lot less common. Mm-hmm. About 50 men per year can get a little wart on the top of their penis and then it can grow into a cancer yeah. and they need to check. So if they get anything abnormal, go along yeah. to your doctor, have it checked out. You're probably a part of the, as I call it, the worried well group. Mm-hmm. There's probably really nothing wrong with you. So go along and get this reassurance. But it's important to go along if you're yeah. worried. Don't Ask leave the questions yes. and the early detection. Thank you very much, Professor Thomas Lynch, for coming and chatting with us, consultant urologist at St. James's Hospital, Black Rock Clinic and Trinity College. Now, again, for more information, you can visit Irish Cancer Society's website, www.cancer.ie or contact that support line on free phone 1800 200 700 or email supportline at irishcancer.ie. Now, coming up, we'll get to as many of your questions about migraine as we can. And I'll also have for you your very own supercharged fitness tip of the week. It's Anna's fitness tip for the week. thinking what's my fitness tip of the week going to be and I was starting to think you know when you decide to take up a new sport or an exercise regime and we all know those people they they decide and then they go out and get the best gear like they're taking up cycling they've got the best bike with the best tyres and the best equipment somebody that's deciding to go skiing for the first time they have the best ski suit even though they've never set foot on the slopes if you are someone that is deciding to begin your journey with strength training or resistance training you don't need to go out and buy all the equipment just yet you probably have it in your home so let's go back to basics rather than buying the dumbbells and kettlebells start with things like bags of sugar because they weigh one kgs each or maybe you know the the big water containers you know when you're on holidays and you're bringing back the drums of water from the shop and your arms are weighed down like again they are, they are a form of resistance. Or bags of potatoes, which we probably have, the 5 kgs, the 10 kgs. So what you can do is you can go on, you can YouTube a workout, or you can actually go onto my Instagram page at Anna G. Cork because I have lots of specific workouts for beginners. And then pick up your bags of sugar or your potatoes or your water containers. And you know what? Before you know it, you have your ready-made home gym right there. And all you need to do then is go out and use it. It's Anna's fitness tip for the week. I'd be very interested to see if you actually do that. Get in contact and let me know how you get on. Now, we are turning our attention to migraine and lots of questions have been coming in. But also, a lot of you have been sharing your stories about migraine too. My name is Neve Reid and since the summer of 2015 I've been living with hemiplegic migraine. This is a rare form of migraine that mimics a stroke. So my symptoms include facial droop, muscle weakness or pins and needles down one side of my body, slurred speech, poor coordination, dizziness, nausea and of course headache. I also fall under the category of chronic migraine which means I have in excess of 15 headache days per month eight of which are migraines. I've actually had some level of headache every day for over seven years now. At my worst, my attacks were so regular and so severe that I was practically housebound for a year and had to retrain myself to walk unaided. 
for me, medical treatments were largely unsuccessful, so I focused my efforts on lifestyle changes like sleep hygiene, nutrition, hydration, stress management, exercise, and spending more time in nature. Since making these changes, my condition has proved, improved massively. Honestly, life is pretty good again. Hi, Anna, it's Barry here. Um, my experience with migraine started in my mid-30s when I started to have blurry vision and, and pretty severe migraines for a number of months. I went to the optician to see that maybe that was the issue and the optician said that my eyesight was fine and perfect and, and nothing wrong there, but that I wasn't, in his opinion, drinking enough water and I should start drinking more water on a daily basis. Um, I started doing that straight away and since that I haven't had a single migraine since then and that's a number of years ago. Hi Anna, this is Joanne here just in relation to migraines. So my youngest boy was diagnosed with migraine, he was just um, under five. I suppose it was only just back then that he, he could actually explain how it felt that his head was sore so he was sent for a barium swallow test and an MRI of the brain which ruled out anything else but in fact he was actually suffering them from age three or possibly even age two but we didn't know at the time and we would give the norofen. Now if we were very lucky the norofen would take effect and he would sleep it off but more than likely it wouldn't hit on time and he would end up vomiting. We always tried to prevent the vomiting but as time went on we actually realised that the vomiting was actually a great relief and it really eased the symptoms but in hindsight now what we realised is that when he was maybe three and if we had, you know the way during the summer you might pop over somewhere and you'd stay a bit later that it was those late nights that triggered the migraine. Again, thank you to everybody for sharing your stories. I mean like some of those Sounds so debilitating and quite frankly, like horrendous. And a lot of people that don't experience migraine can often dismiss like migraines as simply a headache. But listening to those stories, it's clear that, I mean, it can severely impact on your life. Now, joining me now to get the facts are Dr. Mary Carney, a GP specialising in headache to answer all of your questions. And there have been a lot of questions coming in. Mary, thank you very much for joining us on Supercharged. I suppose we'll get straight in because I'm conscious I want to try and get to as many of these as possible. Very simply to begin with, what is migraine and how can it differ from other headaches? Thank you very much for having me and it's a great opportunity to be here. Um, Migraine is is a really bad headache. I mean, people generally, the classic thing is that they get a bad headache. They have to pull over the curtains, they have to lie down, Mm -hmm. they have to go to sleep. And as one of your listeners says, they vomited. Mm -hmm. But I, I also want to remember the other people as well as those having the really severe migraine, having the moderate to mild migraine because they are often misdiagnosed. Okay. And and anybody who really attends a GP who's bad enough to be thinking about going to their GP with their headaches, they could easily have migraine. And unfortunately, 20 or 30 years ago, they were probably told that they had a tension headache. And in fact, they could still be called that, but they probably have migraine. And and just to reiterate what the clips said there, some of those people there have done my work for me here tonight, and um, particularly the lifestyle. Lifestyle, changes in lifestyle improves your migraine headaches and your headaches in general by 30%. Wow. And we have got so many questions about lifestyle yeah. in general here, whether everything from food triggers, mm. you know, vitamins, it just, and we will get to as many. Those well, well, we just want to go back and keep it simple to that woman who said, if we had put the child to bed earlier, if yeah. we'd kept a regular routine mm-hmm. and for us working people, um, one of the experts said, you must have breakfast at home in the morning. You cannot have breakfast at 10 o'clock. If you get up at 7 o'clock, you have to have your breakfast. And they are the basic lifestyle things and you must have a reasonable diet. 
before we get into the the different diets, um, you know, it has to be sugar, less sugar than normal, Mm -hmm. uh, less processed food. And it has to be regular, two to three hours between foods. And none of this staying up late, unfortunately, while you're particularly going through a bad phase of migraine. And are there different types of migraines and like what symptoms the main, can patients The main experience? division is that there's migraine with aura and there's migraine without aura. Now, migraine without aura is the most common. It's your common gardener one. The migraine with aura and, and it's a brainstem aura that that Neve said that she developed the hemiplegic migraine. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's the two main categories of the migraine with aura, which includes the brainstem one and the hemiplegic one and the eye one. There are several different forms of migraine within the. God, it's, like it's it, very complicated for people. It's quite complicated. And then I want to touch on the migraine uh, associated with periods and hormones. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of questions that, have come while, in about that. While that's not in the classification in the international classification, it's in the appendix because there hasn't been enough research. Can you believe it? There hasn't been enough research about um, migraine associated with menstruation. Uh, and I might just add there at this stage, there's um, tr- for women, it's between 15 and 49. They're the most common age group to get migraine, the most productive years of our lives. And uh, one third of women will have pure menstrual migraine where it's present just the day before and the days of menstruation. One third will have it. Uh, at the time they're having their period and throughout the month and then another third it won't bear any resemblance mm-hmm. between the month. So they're the major class. Well somebody's um, message in I get hormonal migraines with my cycle how do I prevent this? Now the first thing is we have to have a proper diagnosis and we need a diary and I have the Migraine Association of Ireland their diary with me tonight. Okay. So we need three documented months of diary before we can make the diagnosis. And basically if you really feel you've menstrual migraines really assessed your hormones go in a natural cycle of up and down throughout the month. So what you need to do is stabilize the hormones and that's best done with a progesterone only pill. But if you have migraine with aura it's not, it's very unlikely that you have pure menstrual migraine. A question coming in here now about dizziness. Um, You know, can migraine make you dizzy? Now, that's a very complicated question because you have a section of people who have migraine with aura. It affects the brainstem. And when they get their aura before their headache, they get this awful dizziness. But in the people who don't classically get an aura, they get dizziness and the dizziness can last for up to a week. I want to say something about dizziness here. It's very easy for the medical profession to mix up vertigo, dizziness and migraine. And it's only since 2012 that vestibular migraine which is also in the appendix of the international classification, has been documented. Mm -hmm. And classically, people with migraine, they feel they're on a boat and they're just rocking a little bit. So it's actually completely different from vertigo and dizziness. It's not really dizziness. It's not feeling faint. They just feel as if they're on a boat and they're rocking. Okay, we've actually got another voice note in here now as well. I've been getting migraines since I was a teenager and unfortunately mainly minor hormonal 
So every month without fail, I will get at least two or three migraines. Other times I also get migraines. So it can be stress. It can be good stress, bad stress. Like if I'm really looking forward to a weekend or a holiday and I'm really busy coming up to it, I'll get hit with a bang with a migraine then. There's other factors like cheese, chocolate I have to be aware of if I don't get enough sleep, if I don't eat well. For me, I am prescribed triptans. Thankfully, they work really well for me. I take a triptan at the start of a migraine attack with a couple of paracetamol and an ibuprofen. And this is what I was advised to take at the migraine clinic in Beaumont. And the three of them together work really well. I can only get a prescription for six of these tablets per month. And it just means that I have to be always aware that I have some on me, that I have a prescription and that I don't go anywhere without them. It's just really a huge part of my life. You said there, like, it's a huge part of our life and we are getting lots of messages in about triggers. So I suppose having listened to that voice note, let me jump straight to that. Like, you know, what are the typical triggers or is there a variety of triggers that can um, uh, I, I think you've migraine? had them already there and there's never just one trigger mm-hmm. I want to tell you it, there's always some it's the uh, she's looking forward to the party she's had a late night the boss has been after her at work she missed the breakfast she had a row with the husband and by gum she'll have a headache yeah. and is it possible that you can get a migraine without having any triggers well I really don't think so okay I so should so. people be almost watching their patterns in the lead up? Okay, so you're, you're showing the diary to me in the migraine <laughs> diary. For everyone who can't see her, she's waving it here. So it's very important that you're tracking those patterns in the lead up to migraines then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Now, I just want to add something for that poor lady there. You know, I do think she should be on a preventative um, medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, internationally, they say if you have between six to eight headache days per month, you should be on medication. But I think if I was having four headache days myself per yeah, month, I'd be looking lot. for something. Now, I don't want to give her something that's going to cause side effects. And sometimes people say they don't. But, you know, I actually find people minimise their history when they come to me. Mm-hmm. And I find there's, I'm sure that girl has 12 headache days per month and she's just not telling us how bad it mm-hmm. is. And I just feel she probably needs a preventative. There's lots of questions coming in here as well about food. Can bananas call migraine, cause migraines? I've cut them out and I'm not getting them as frequently. Well, that's where I come back to the fast sugars. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bananas have fast sugars and I'm not a banana fan at any stage. I think an apple is much better or an orange. Even the pears. I just had a banana earlier on. <laughs> no, they give the fast fix and then yeah, you're this up. This is probably down. why I had it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, down in the heap. You're not. Oh, I'd be very strict about the bananas. Okay, that's good. Okay, there's another one coming in as well. Is what would the, the doctor recommend to eat to help with migraine? I find it difficult to eat when the migraine is at its worst. Well, I'll just have to go to my nursing colleague there, Esther Tompkins, who's muck as a years of experience. And she would say, you know, if you could manage the cup of tea and toast with a little, the toast with a bit of marmalade, you know, if you feel the headache is coming down and take your medication get the tea and toast into you lie down and what I say to people when the headache is coming on take an early break go to the mm-hmm. toilet turn off the light even the lights in this studio could bring on a migraine Okay um, yeah. A question now about vitamins um, they were told their vitamin D levels were low and this is what may have been caused the underlying cause of their migraine Well I think you'd probably need a bit more research on that Okay 
that's not something I, I that has been researched and certainly something that's hidden the headlines. But good diet, good sensible diet is important. Um, a question in here about migraine in teenagers. Olive says that she has a sporty 11 year old boy who gets one migraine a month. Will he grow out of them? Well, what happens with migraine, we might ask the second part of it first, is that at certain times in your life, you're under a little bit more stress mm-hmm. and the hormones for the men are changing at that stage. There, there are a little bit times can be difficult in school and that can be triggering it. So we come back to the triggers all along. What's triggering it? The chances are he will improve and he will get out of that phase. But if he's fond of sports, there's a couple of rules for the sports. He has to be well hydrated, like our man that said earlier. He has to be well rested. He has to have, you know, some diet in, in the before he starts. And he has to do a gradual warm up and, you know, take it generally easy. We've got a message in here just now. Is migraine and cluster headaches related? Now, you, there, it's, it's, that's a, a loaded question because there is such a thing as a cluster headache. Mm-hmm. And a cluster headache is completely separate from a migraine. And I have heard people refer to having a cluster of migraines. That's not the correct terminology. But there are people who have migraine and have cluster headache. But bad and all as we think migraine is, cluster headache, it lasts three or four hours and it's a terrible headache. You bang your head off a wall. Unfortunately, it's christened as suicide headache. Well, Catherine asks here another question, uh, Mary. What can I do with the prevention when the prevention medication doesn't work? I've tried numerous ones over the past thirty years. Yes, well, that's that's really the difficult thing. I mean, you have to look at lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Lifestyle is going to do thirty percent, and then medication. The good news for Catherine is there is some new medication which is specifically migraine only, really okay. for migraine. Up to this, we'd been using preventative medication, which was uh, it was found out by accident. They were doing a clinical trial with some blood pressure medication and as it turned out, their people's migraine improved. So that's what we had been using. And now we have the CGRPs, which have revolutionised life for some people. I'm going to get one more question in. I know my producers are going to be giving out here, but there's a question. Have you any advice for a 14 year old who only started getting migraines following a head injury after falling off a horse? Well, that's a very loaded question. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the head injury might have done is it might have made her more likely to get migraine because there's probably a family history and she's got to go back to the triggers go back and um, see what's, t- do the diary and there is medication for it. There is one particular medication which works particularly well for post-traumatic headache. I'm going to give you the last word now because I know there's a book there that you mm. have to mention as well before we run out of time. Well, people were looking for quick tips mm-hmm. and if you want the quick tips, you need to buy Managing Your Migraine. It's a Penguin Life expert book. It's written by my GP colleague in the UK, Dr. Cathy Munro available on Amazon. Thank you very much to Dr Mary Carney for getting through all of those questions this evening and for giving us all that help and advice. And again, if you would like more information on migraine, you can go to migraine.ie. And of course, if you would like help or support about prostate cancer, you can visit Irish Cancer Society's website, cancer.ie. And that support line again for one last time, 1800 200 700. My thanks to everybody that got in contact this evening with your voice notes, with your messages and with your questions. Thank you to my 
guests for coming into studio. And also you can listen back to the show at rte.ie forward slash supercharged or in the Radio Player app or actually wherever you get your podcast. But please share this episode with all the important men in your life that need to hear about prostate cancer and anybody that is suffering from migraine. My thanks as well to the production team, John, Louise, Mahi and Mark and Sound. Get in touch with us via email supercharged at rte.ie or you can always reach out to me as well on Instagram at Anna G. Cork. Until next Sunday evening, mind yourselves and mind each other. Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. And Supercharged with Anna Geary is an OJO production for RTE Radio.